Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. Five to six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies and get all the best streaming apps in one place like iheart for all your favorite music radio and podcasts watch what you want when you want immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4k picture and sound for every budget with sizes for every room find your perfect phillips roku tv today online or at your local walmart and sam's club there's plenty to celebrate in march and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Losing Control is a podcast from Sports Illustrated Studios and iHeartRadio. I'm Justin Sua, and yes, this is Losing Control. The guitarist you just heard playing the blues suffers from a movement disorder. Out of respect to his privacy, I'll call him Aaron, which is his pseudonym. It's hard for me to show you the the worst thing because I can't do it. You know, so I can't show it to you because I literally can't do it. But I used to play all of this. I can't do it. I, I just, you know. If it sounds like Aaron is playing the guitar in a doctor's office, that's because he is playing the guitar in a doctor's office. And what Aaron can't do is play like he used to. Because he suffers from a form of dystonia. In this case, musician's dystonia. Which is a movement disorder that causes involuntary muscle spasms or jerks. It's almost like the gyroscope in your wrist 
shuts down. It moves around arbitrarily. I mean, the main problem is a twisting of, of the wrist involuntarily. It's extremely frustrating because the sensation of your body refusing to obey the mental command is, is you know, upsetting as well as, as practically frustrating. It's really, it's, you know, produced a kind of despair when you keep trying over and over again to perform a simple task and you can't do it. If you've been listening to Losing Control, you've heard athletes describe something that sounds awfully similar. And that's because dystonia and the yips are closely related. In fact, in some cases, the yips is dystonia. And that's what we're getting into today. Now, we've talked about what the yips feel like and how those who have the yips learn to live with it. But today on Losing Control, we're exploring some of the science and the pathology of the yips and taking a look under the hood to get a better sense of how we move our bodies. You're going to hear from a neurologist who is an expert on movement disorders, Dr. Stephen Frucht, as well as two neuroscientists, Dr. Lena Ting and Dr. Alea Ahmed, who each study the neural control of movement. And toward the end of the episode, we'll check back with Aaron, the guitar player. It's the science of the yips today on Losing Control. I'm Justin Sua, and this is Losing Control, a podcast about one of the strangest phenomena in sports, the yips, or when an athlete or elite performer suddenly finds themselves unable to do the thing that they do better than almost everyone else on the planet. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. But if you want the full experience, head back to episode one. Losing Control is a podcast told through conversations with athletes, coaches, neuroscientists, and more, and it's in order. Each episode features a first-hand perspective that contributes a piece to the puzzle that is the yips. Along the way, you'll learn about some of the challenges that high performers face and the mental work that enables them to do what they do. Not only that, you'll hear how you can incorporate these tools, strategies, and mindsets into your own life. Because it's not just about losing control, it's about getting it back. So let's get started. Dr. Stephen Frucht is a neurologist and movement disorder clinician, and I spoke to him at his office at NYU Langone, a major medical center in New York City. Dr. Frucht has been working with movement disorder patients for 20 years, and he has a particular interest in musicians, whom he calls athletes of the small muscles. To kick off our conversation, I asked him about what athletes and musicians have in common. So, training of elite athletes is very similar to training of elite musicians. Musicians, for the most part, are athletes of the small muscles. And musicians are very similar to athletes in that they drill precise movements to the point where those movements become automatic. They can do them almost perfectly without consciously thinking about them. In athletes, some use the term flow. They're in the flow and they're in the zone and everything is working. Now, for musicians, that, that can happen as well, but we speak more of what's called the automatic pilot. So what is the automatic pilot? When you are first learning a new work, even if you're an elite performer, you have to do a lot of hard work. A pianist wants to learn a new piano concerto, 25 minutes that they haven't played before. It's going to take months for them to learn that. And they're going to start out with pencil and paper in hand, going through the music, figuring out the fingerings that work for them, 
playing slowly, using a metronome, and slowly building up the speed over time. Think back to what Dr. Fruck said earlier. Musicians are athletes of the small muscles. First, a musician practices a piece of music, and then, as they internalize it, they begin to refine specific passages. In the learning process, they are thinking about individual movements. They're thinking about individual passages. They're thinking about what it is they have to learn how to do. At a certain point, the automatic pilot has been entrained so that when they're playing that passage, they're not thinking about their hands anymore. They're thinking about the musical conviction, about uh, color, about expression, etc. So where in the brain is that put down? Where is the automatic pilot? It's almost better to think about what is the automatic pilot than where, because information in the brain is not stored in one specific location. When we're learning, we are using what's called the cortex of the brain, the outer regions of the brain that we are consciously aware of to do the motor program. Once something is encoded in the automatic pilot, it is almost certainly subcortical. It's deeper within the brain so that we are not consciously thinking about it. But it's not just in one area of the brain. It's in a series of networks of uh, connections and connectivity of different brain regions that control the motor system. And it's deeply encoded, so much so that if you have a musician who played a concerto 20 years ago and, and learned it, when they were young, if they suddenly get a call that they have to go play this piece in three days, they can get it back. Sometimes they can play the piece fairly flawlessly, even not having played it in 15 or 20 years. Now, they're not thinking about how to play the piece. They're activating their automatic pilot, which then kicks in, and they simply do it without active conscious thought. This is a window into how we automize movements, and these automized movements are exactly what the yips impacts. The brain is as powerful, if not more powerful, than the most amazing supercomputer we can build. And if everything about that supercomputer works perfectly, except for one program, Microsoft Word, and every time you boot up that particular program, it's a little bit virused. It doesn't quite work the way it should. But everything else works fine about the computer. That is the analogy for a patient with dystonia. Their hand can work perfectly, typing, writing, playing their instrument in every way, except that one passage that triggers this problem. Do you remember Aaron playing the guitar earlier in the episode? It's not that he's completely unable to play the guitar anymore, but he's unable to pick and strum in very specific ways. Now, what we see over time is, over you know months, sometimes over several years, that problem starts to expand. It expands to other types of passages involving that finger. It then spreads usually to an adjoining finger, so that any time they approach the instrument, they are triggering uh, involuntary movements in the hand and an inability to play. So it's it's almost like an erosion of the the automatic pilot, if you will. Still, in most of these patients, the hand does everything else normally. And that's why people who experience this might describe it as psychological, 
because other movements that utilize the same muscles work just fine. The automatic thing that musicians do when they experience this is they blame themselves. They say, I'm out of shape, I need to work harder, I just need to practice more. So it's very common for people to just lock the practice room door and to continue to work and work and work, assuming that it's their fault. That, of course, is counterproductive uh, in the development of, of dystonia because it's not their fault. It simply happened. Dystonia is not a psychological problem. For a large part of the 20th century, many individuals, many physicians thought that dystonia was a psychological disorder. It turns out that's complete nonsense. It has nothing to do with neuroses. It has nothing to do with a psychological problem. This is a problem within the brain. Now, how do we know that? Once sophisticated brain imaging became available, MRI, what's called PET scanning, etc., people began to study these patients, and what they found was that when you take a patient who has dystonia and you actually look and measure at how the brain activates when they perform a task, the brains of patients with dystonia are activating with a pattern that's very different from those who don't have dystonia. This is a disorder of the brain. It's a disorder of motor control. Stress can exacerbate it, can make it worse, but this is not a, a pure psychological problem. Musicians and athletes may attract the most attention, but they are not the only people who suffer from dystonia. The most common form of focal dystonia occurring with a task that we see in the clinic is what's called writer's cramp. Writer's cramp is a task-specific dystonia that makes it very difficult to write with a pen or a pencil. So this was the first form of what's called a task-specific dystonia that was described about 150 years ago. And still, for most neurologists who don't see musicians or athletes, this is the form of focal dystonia that they're going to see in the clinic. In terms of other occupations, so any occupation that requires repetitive, highly attended tasks performed over years can be affected. So you can see individuals who are using their hands, such as watch repairers. You can see dystonia affecting the hands of surgeons. Um, an endless list of, of uh, individuals who perform those sorts of tasks. It's just that more musicians and athletes have been described in the literature and they've attracted more attention because of the impact of dystonia on their professional careers that that, that has gained so much attention. Now, you might be wondering, is the answer to the Big Yips mystery an identifiable neurological disease? Not entirely. Sometimes people use words like the yips to uh, not refer to dystonia. So people may say, oh, I, I got the yips when I was playing golf. And they're not talking about a disorder where there's a breakdown in motor control or involuntary movements that are occurring. They're talking about a performance anxiety-related problem where they lose the ability to, to do that. But when we neurologically use that term yips, we're thinking of it as dystonia. 
Whether the collection of experiences that we commonly refer to as the yips is dystonia or not is a question that we're not going to be able to give a definitive answer to on this podcast. And there's a lot about dystonia that we still don't know. The more I see of dystonia, the more I realize how little I know. This is a never-ending prospect. In many ways, dystonia is a window onto everything we don't know about motor control and motor learning. We don't know, for example, why certain musicians develop this and others don't. We also don't know what is the proximate trigger. Why did it happen to a given individual? And why in some individuals it's progressive and becomes a real problem very quickly, and in others it may take years to do that. All these things are complete unknowns. But there is one thing we do know. Like Dr. Fruck said, dystonia is not a psychological problem. And if some of these symptoms sound familiar, it might be worth talking to a doctor. When we're back, we're shifting from neurology to neuroscience, and specifically to the neural control of movement after this. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hey guys, Rob Parker here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like the rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower 
power further than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. And when you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. I'm Justin Sua, and this is Losing Control. From musician to athlete, and from elite performers to the rest of us, part of the Yip story is that movement is something we take for granted, something we don't fully appreciate until we can no longer do some activity the way we once could. In the second half of today's episode, we're delving further into the how of movement and considering how our understanding of movement might inform our understanding of the Yips. My name is Lena Ting. I'm a professor at Emory University and Georgia Tech. Dr. Ting is a mechanical engineer and a neuroscientist. As a mechanical engineer, when I was a student, I always felt that we didn't know enough about the physics of the body. And if we knew that, then we would understand what the brain needs to do to control it. On the other hand, if you go to a neuroscience realm, it's what's in the brain that allows the body to move. And both perspectives are partially right and partially wrong. And so my research is really focused at the center where we can't really dissociate one from the other. Dr. Ting researches neuromechanics, and this is a quote, how movement intention translates to action through the complex interplay between the nervous system and the musculoskeletal system. Let's start with the building blocks, motor modules. So the idea with motor modules is that our bodies, especially as humans, are highly flexible and multifunctional, right? We can run, we can skip, we can dance. But in order to achieve any one well-coordinated task, we have to control our body parts together in a, a functional way. So the way I'm going to coordinate my leg muscles for walking is going to be different than for swimming, perhaps, or or maybe there are some similarities there. Think about the number of actions or motor modules that compose a single movement. And then think about how these movements function to create something like running, skipping, dancing, playing an instrument, or swimming. At the level of parts, a good analogy is language. There are letters, words. And finally, sentences. The idea is that your nervous system learns these coordination patterns. And so each person has to learn the physics of their body and say, oh, when I'm reaching, I'm going to coordinate it this way. When I'm trying to push, I'm going to control it one way or pull, I'm going to control it another way. And then it sort of forms the the syllables or the words 
of movements so you can put them together in different ways. I asked Dr. Ting to talk about the fluency of a baby, a dancer, and an athlete in the language of movement. It's quite different depending on if you're a novice or an expert, and especially in the case of the baby. So there's different levels. It's, there's like a grammar of movement, just like in language, right? The baby's learning syllables, then words and sentences. The dancer is trying to put those words together into some kind of creative expression, and the athlete's trying to achieve whatever goals are necessary to excel at their sport. Movement also has distinctive style or character. So the idea of motor style is really based on this idea that we all form our own motor modules, these building blocks of movement that are tailored to my body, but also dependent on my experience. If I'm a dancer and I've trained my motor modules in a particular way to be artistic and to do certain dance moves, we've shown that those ballet dancers will use those same modules for walking. And so the fact that they have trained themselves in a very specific way tends to shape these motor modules that they use for everyday living. And so I think that's why we can tell just by somebody how somebody walks, whether they were a dancer or they're a football player. And that just shows us that the act of walking itself can be achieved in many, many different ways. And each of us is going to learn our own way to do it that still falls within the, the laws of physics that are set by our bodies. I've been very inspired by speech accents in sort of understanding individual movement styles or motor accents. And speech is actually a motor task. So if I learn to say my vowels in a particular way, then when I speak a language that's my own or foreign to me, I'm going to have a particular way of doing that. And I think that principle applies to movements as well. So we've talked about how movement is structurally similar to language and also about how the way each of us move is unique in the same way each of us uses language is unique. But how do the yips figure into this picture? I want to go back to motor modules. It's interesting. When we talk about motor modules, we're typically talking about something very automated, something that athletes might refer to as muscle memory. So it's not really in your muscles, it's in your nervous system, and it's the learned pattern that you have learned for your body to move. And we've shown that those motor modules might differ a little bit between a ballet dancer and a non-ballet dancer and are shaped by our training. But when you're training, you're also involving the higher levels of your brain, right? So in your, in your brain and your motor cortex, and there is an idea that the motor cortex is more like a tutor for learning how to move, but it can also take over in certain situations when we have to bring conscious awareness to our movements. And a lot of times that's in learning, or if you're hyper aware of you know, what you're doing, and usually the advice is not to think about the movements in any kind of athletic or sort of musical or dance performance, right? So it could be a shifting from one way to control movement to another one that is more conscious. On the other hand, it's also possible that the motor module itself is broken. And in 
rehabilitation studies with people with neurological disorders, we see that those motor models do change in uh, stroke or in Parkinson's disease. And the role of rehabilitation, which I think is basically training for people with movement impairments, shows that it, it may be possible for people to break out of those broken modules due to neurological impairments. So I think that the mechanisms of the nervous system aren't that different from rehabilitation to highly trained athletes. And so that plasticity should be available to both people with poor movements as well as those who are highly skilled. Let me unpack some of this. On the one hand, there's this idea of a broken motor module, a specific, formally automized movement that no longer works the way it once did. On the other hand, there's a shifting of an automized movement from something that is done unconsciously to something that is done deliberately. And the good news is that in both cases, because our brains are plastic, we can work to rehabilitate broken movements and we can also learn how to re-automize movements which have become deliberate. In other words, it is possible to retrain the brain. I had one more question for Dr. Ting. Whatever movements we're working on, what should we try to remember? What advice does she have based on her understanding of neural mechanics and the neural control of movement? Our brains are plastic, so they can change. And whatever we practice is going to reinforce the connections in our nervous system. And I think that is particularly important in focusing on the basics of movement because those bad habits of movement are, are difficult to unlearn later. And then there's this other idea that sometimes in high stress situations, people will choke. And I'll say I've had experience with that in my own athletic endeavors. And the idea is that we're too focused on the outcomes rather than on how we're playing. Are we making good decisions? Are we moving in an efficient way? and being more worried about, are they watching me? Are, am I gonna let my teammates down? Am I gonna let my coach down? And that causes you to shift the control up to your kind of cortex, less automated movements, and is probably not conducive to the highest levels of, of skill or of uh, performance. So what I would recommend, and this is based on both my personal and my professional experience, is to train your brain to move in the right ways. That means drills and things could be important, as well as enjoy the act of playing your sport or doing your musical performance, because all of that is going to reinforce the automaticity of movement and the need not to be worried about outcomes, but on having good form and making good decisions. Focus on what you can control. We'll be back with more on the relationship between decision-making, mental states, and movement after this. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
the all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. After six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected, or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moon roof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. I'm Justin Sua, and this is Losing Control. Today we've been looking at the science of the yips as well as into how the brain and the body create movement. Dr. Alea Ahmed also studies the neural control of movement, but her work incorporates decision making and value. And we're going to look specifically at the relationship between movement and value. But first, as always, I asked Dr. Ahmed for her perspective on the yips. I mean, the, the one obvious thing is that there is a uh, dystonia, that there could be a neurological condition. But putting that aside, the other potential is that it is something psychological. Wait a minute. Earlier in the episode, didn't Dr. Fruck emphatically say that dystonia isn't psychological? He did. 
But that's not what we're talking about here. Every movement is a decision where you have to weigh the costs and the rewards and the risk. The relationship between the movement decisions we make and what we value is a subject of vigor, a book Dr. Ahmed wrote with Reza Shadmir. What the book is looking at is it's it's exploring this idea that our movements are a window to the mind. There are two big questions that are asked when it comes to the brain. You know, one is, how do we choose what to do? How do we make decisions? And, And when do we make bad decisions and how can we fix that? And then the other question is, well, you know, what determines the characteristics of the movements that follow? So essentially, that's really what the, what the book is, is going after. We're trying to explore this idea that the neural circuits that control our decisions are also involved in controlling our movements. In your book, you write about two different people arriving at an airport. One walks towards a waiting car and the other runs to hug their family. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Um, yeah, we, I, I've, oh, I've always liked that example. And it's so true. It's just anecdotal, but it, it is so true. And I also, whenever I come back from a, from a trip, I'm always just, just running through the airport generally, even though no one's waiting for me. I'm just so happy to be home. And, you know, we talk about running, running to hug a loved one and just walking to your car just to an acquaintance. Well, I think that what's happening is that love is a reflection of what we value. And our goal in the book is to show that how we value something affects how we move. And, and so that's really, that's, the, that's that connection right there. Love is value. And we move faster to the things that we value more. And in this book, we focus on how value can affect vigor or the speed um, with which we move. But there are many other aspects to movement that, um, that are also choices, and that will also be influenced by, by value. I want to talk about that a little bit. That's a really interesting point because as you're, de- as you're talking about love, I'm thinking about other emotions. I'm thinking about what role does anger play on, on movement? What role does anxiety play on movement? What role does positivity and joy play on movement? How, how do emotions infuse movement? Yeah, that, that's, you know, that's a great question. We really focus on reward. And we focus on value, not directly on emotion. But you can kind of link the two and say, you know, that punishment is really uh, aversive, right? And it leads to anxiety. And, uh, and reward, you can link with joy. In our book, we look at movements, you know, how you choose your movements, how you choose characteristics of your movements, us and others have looked at also learning. So how do you learn? Uh, and one of the things that people have found is that when you learn something, you can give people different types of feedback. You, you know, you can give them rewarding feedback. Oh, you did great. And the better they do, you give them more reward. Or you can also, you could have the, the, you could have the same training regimen, but with punishment. You could be punishing people for when they don't do well enough. And you can imagine that with the punishment leads to kind of greater feelings of anxiety. And what's interesting is that, you know, after training and whether, whether you have a group of subjects that have been exposed to rewarding, training with reward, another group that's been trained with punishment. And immediately after training, both groups are the same. They've, they, they've achieved similar performance. But then if you follow up with them weeks or months later, you find that the group that, was, that learned under the, you know, rewarding paradigm, that learning stuck with them. Whereas the group that learns under the punishment paradigm, 
that learning was no longer retained. So that, you know, that the emotional state in which you're in can potentially influence just how those memories are laid down, at least over the, at least over the long term. How you're coaching or how you're being coached can have a big impact on the durability of the movements you're training. And the same is true for your mental state. There isn't a strong scientific basis for this. Yeah, I always feel that you know, I want to temper things. But to come at it from a place of love is so beneficial. Science suggests that you know, this is, you're able to learn better and longer in addition to also choosing to, to train. But also, I think that this allows you to perform more optimally, to have a, an improved perception of your, um, of your body, improved perception of your, your capabilities, and thus you're able to, to move in the, the best way that you can. So I think that it's, um, it's good to, to always be in a, in, a, in, a positive, in a positive place when you are training and when you are performing these, uh, these amazing, amazing skills. Dr. Ahmed has first-hand experience of the relationship between mental states, decision-making, and movement. When we spoke, she had recently broken her leg in a skiing accident, and it wasn't the first time. I actually broke my leg um, skiing uh, 10 years ago uh, <laughs> as well. And I, and I always worried that because I'm in this line of research, I know that when people are, feel threatened, they, they make bad movement choices. And I was always afraid that, I always worried that I would never get back into skiing because I would be so, um, so terrified that I would actually then screw up my movements. I'd fall again. <laughs> and so I've always been very cognizant of that over the years is that I, I make sure that when I'm, when I'm skiing, I'm always very comfortable and I'm in a happy place and I, and, I, and I only go on runs that I feel comfortable with. Not that I'm being excessively cautious, but I make sure that I'm, that I'm comfortable uh, with them because I know if I am terrified, I'm going to make a bad movement decision and potentially fall. I want to go back to something Dr. Ahmed just said. Why do people make bad movement decisions when they feel threatened? So one reason why, why people may also fail under threat is that things can feel threatening all of a sudden is when there's high stakes. And one reason for why people can choke under these high stakes situations is that instead of seeing them as potentially rewarding, they just think of them as a potential loss. They just think of the, the, the loss that could be incurred. And it's like the brain makes this mental switch. So this may relate to other questions now that I think about it, where um, usually we think of um, the things that we're going to attain in terms of their, the reward value. But sometimes your brain can, can frame it differently. And it's very subtle. Where instead of you thinking of what you stand to gain, you think about what you stand to lose. And people tend to be very much more sensitive to losses than gains. And so then this could, in theory, lead to, um, if you start thinking about things in terms of what you can lose as opposed to what you can gain, that this can also influence your, um, how you move. If there was one thing you wish everyone knew about how the brain controls movement, what would that be? We don't really appreciate the complexity involved in our movements and the flexibility until something really goes wrong. So, you know, I've, I broke my leg. Uh, I'm hobbling around on crutches. Of course, I, I, you know, I miss being able to walk <laughs> on two legs. But even beyond that, I'm amazed 
at how I'm able to adjust to walking with crutches. Like my brain is constantly learning how I can move better and stabilize myself better and perform tasks with two hands while I'm using my crutches. And I think that that is really just um, as, is amazing. It's, it's remarkable, really, all these tiny things that we do unconsciously, if you will, to adapt to new environments. You've heard it before, but our brains are incredible machines, and even basic motor control still remains well out of the reach of our scientific understanding. My postdoc advisor, Daniel Wolpert, always had this great example to just illustrate how hard it is to make a movement. So he would say, you know, you look, you know, we can build a computer now that can beat any grandmaster at chess. So we, we have solved that problem. But we still can't build a robot that will manipulate the chess piece with the dexterity of even a six-year-old child. That problem is definitely, decidedly unsolved. I want to go back to Dr. Frucht, the neurologist you met at the beginning of this episode. We take for granted the fact that we automatically go through our day and go through our lives uh, moving through space. But control of even what look like simple movements is a delicate balance and quite an extraordinary thing. Dr. Frucht once said that neurology used to be thought of as a specialty where you observe something, but you couldn't help people. How has this changed? The joke about neurology used to be the neurologists were thought of as uh, bow tie wearing, uh, you know, individuals who sat in armchairs and thought great thoughts and never did anything to help somebody. Not just movement disorders, but many areas of neurology, epilepsy, headache, sleep medicine, uh, stroke, this, this is a therapeutic field now. And particularly movement disorders, we're, you know, we, of course, we think our field is the best field because that's why we went into it. But what's available even in movement disorders therapeutically now compared to when I was first training 25 years ago is night and day. So, you know, for the average patient who walks into the office with any sort of movement disorder, we can help them. Well, we can actually improve their quality of life, which is quite an extraordinary thing if you think about it. You know, we can't do everything. There are certainly areas of neurology that have been very challenging, like the dementias and Alzheimer's disease, etc. But for many areas, and particularly movement disorders, this is a therapeutic field. Do you think we're getting closer to finding a reliable cure for focal dystonia and, and the yips? We used to think that that was a complete impossibility. I no longer think that now. I think there are people who, for one reason or another, have a tremendous benefit from various treatments and even return to a state that may be very difficult to, to see that they have dystonia anymore. The real question is, can you put the genie back in the bottle? Can you take a musician who has developed dystonia or an athlete who has developed dystonia and reset the motor network so that they're back to the pre-dystonia state. I, I wouldn't uh, assume that it's impossible anymore. Remember Aaron, the guitar player you heard earlier? He received treatment for musician's dystonia 
the day we spoke to him at Dr. Fruck's office. I asked him how he felt and what relief he hoped he might experience. I, I feel guardedly optimistic, you know, I mean, I, because it's been going on so long, it's hard to imagine that it would suddenly, I would suddenly go back to normal. To be clear, Aaron wasn't receiving treatment to reset his motor network, as Dr. Fruck put it, on the day we were able to sit in on his appointment. However, he did receive a treatment, one in a series of injections of botulinum toxin, commonly known as Botox, which may effectively reduce the symptoms of dystonia and even make it possible for Aaron to play the guitar like he once could. I'd just like to be able to play the music like I can, you know, hypothetically play it. Or like I used to be able to play Next time on Losing Control, we're looking into one of the things that the yips isn't, performance anxiety. And you'll hear from Gwendolyn Mock, a concert pianist, and retired tennis pro Marty Fish, next time on Losing Control. A sincere thank you to our guests. Dr. Alea Ahmed, a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder who studies the neural control of movement. Dr. Stephen Frucht, a neurologist and clinician at NYU Langone who has been working with movement disorder patients and studying movement disorders for more than 20 years. Dr. Lena Ting, a professor at Emory University and the Georgia Institute of Technology whose research is at the cutting edge of advancing our understanding of how we move. And finally, Aaron, a musician who suffers from dystonia. Special thanks to Dr. Patrick Drummond. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to rate and subscribe. I'm Justin Sua, your host, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Justin Sua. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-S-U-A. You can also check me out on the Increase Your Impact podcast. Losing Control is a podcast from Sports Illustrated Studios and iHeartRadio. Original music by Jerome Sua. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing, mixing, and additional production assistance by Will Stanton. This episode was fact-checked by Zoe Mullick. At SI Studios, Max Miller is supervising producer, and Brandon Getchis and Matt Lipson are executive producers. At iHeartRadio, Sean Titone is our executive producer. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast does not provide medical advice, and nothing you hear on this podcast is intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical consultation, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.